0: The text for today is uh, 1 Corinthians 12, wait for it, 1 through 7, 11 through 20, 24 through 27, and 31, okay? Yeah? well, I'll talk about it why in a sec. Okay, Uh, here we go. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed, You know that when you were pagan, somehow or other, you were influenced or led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same work of God at work. Now, to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Skip to 11. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one, just as he determines. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink, even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. Now, if the foot should say, Because I am a hand, I do not, be- not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be, if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Twenty-four. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there might, there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concerns for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Thirty-one now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. All right, so we're back almost uh, onto a real direct treatment of the idea of love and the hymn to love in uh, Corinthians 13. We're like right at the cusp of it. It comes right after uh, the, the stuff that we'll look at today here. And you all know that hymn well. It shows up in... I don't know almost every wedding in our house it shows up in countless family arguments. <laughs> Beth <laughs> reminds me love is patient and kind. I shoot back it doesn't keep a record of wrongs <laughs> you all You all know the drill. uh The interesting thing to me is you know, and this is one of those things that happens when we break the Bible up in into chapters is that you know what what have we looked at? We looked uh for a little bit at uh, the stuff that the described the character of the love feast, described what it meant to uh, eat together. That was just a, a, a little bit ago. And then we've got uh, this chapter which ostensibly is about spiritual gifts that, you know, I, I don't know, I, I, as I, I grew up in a kind of evangelical Lutheran church that uh, flirted with, um, with Pentecostalism. So we, we, heard, <laughs> we heard 12 a, a good bit, and when most people talk about it, they kind of talk about it like it's a taxonomy of the spiritual gifts. I want to read it today to point out the continuity between the stuff about the love feast and the stuff about the spiritual gifts, which is essentially, as I read it, Paul's big lead up to the chapter on love. So, you know, look at the larger narrative flow and think about how these things kind of all come together to make one cumulative argument. So, you know, just to remind you, we looked at the love feast because we were talking about agape and. The idea of the agape feast shaped the way that the early Christian community thought about agape. And so first, I guess we looked in um, you know, Jude. Remember the thing in Jude about the uh, pe- uh, people coming to the love feasts and being authentic about it, yada, yada. And then we spent a few, a few more weeks than we expected on Corinthians. And one of the main things, that, at least I'd say we were doing there, is to look at the shape of the agape feast and then to also figure out where it was going wrong. Because if you see where the Agape Feast is going wrong, you see something about the character not only of a specific liturgical practice, but you see something about the character of how the early community imagined love. So where does it go wrong? Well, I don't know. We talked about a bunch of this stuff for a good, good amount of time. And I'd say, like, if you were to condense it to one theme or idea, the theme or idea is that the way that the love feast was being performed in Corinth demonstrated that there were a lot of people who were committed to love in word, but their actions didn't match the words that they said and the ideas that they said that were important to them. And so we, that we distilled like basically four or five principles. You'll remember them. Love is an action. Uh, it's not just a sentiment or even a feeling. And, and, and when we relate to others in, in the Christian community in love, we do it in a way that is supposed to be honest and authentic. And maybe the big point of love is to see God and see others without seeing them, (coughs) excuse me, through the lens of various kinds of divisions in word or in deed. So at least I take the stuff we've been talking about in Corinthians to say something like, you know, we can't let anything get in the way of full, frank, honest, intimate communion with God and with others, and, and when we've looked at lots of things that kind of got in the way over the last couple of weeks, like the religious law got in the way, definitely questions of status and identity got in the way, social position got in the way, material inequity got in the way, and the point of all of it was something like all this stuff that divides us needs to fall away, or, oh, thank you, <laughs> all this stuff needs to kind of fall away, or I don't know, one of the ways I've been thinking about it is it kind of needs to be dissolved. Because each of those divisions, whether it's based on the religious law, whether it's based on status, whether it's based on, I don't know, your your ethnic group or any of those things, they need to fall away, they need to dissolve because any of them potentially stands as a division to or a barrier to the kind of full, frank, and intimate communion with other folks that the agape feast embodied and that love aims at. That, that, I think, is the big message. So it was why everyone had to eat, for example. Remember how we talked about, you know, if, you got, if you're real hungry and you got a lot of food, go eat it in your own home, but, you know, eat together with everybody, make sure everybody has some stuff to eat. It's why, for example, uh, as we know about the early agape feasts, uh, masters would have washed the feet of their slaves. It's why uh, all the different kind of... Uh, ethnic groups would have come together in this meal and the meal was open and inviting to people as long as they were willing to direct themselves towards Christ because the point of it was something like it wasn't just communion in a a ritual liturgical sense it was that the ritual and liturgy of communion was a way of of kind of enacting or embodying a vision of Christian community that made the idea of love real and as we talked about last time you know I spent a good amount of time on this but you know, maybe a little too ranty on it, but the point is, you know, what, what, it, what we see in the Agape Feast is a vision of being knit together as even something more than a community, because we see the full dignity of each person as being made in the image of God. We see in each person someone for whom Christ would have gone to the cross if the world was constituted Only by them we see in each person a kind of radically deep vision of dignity that comes from the fact that they are loved by and created by God. And although each one of us is fallen, each one of us is also infinitely loved by God, who invites us to share a common being in the person of Jesus Christ. And if if that idea hits us, if that idea is real, you know, it doesn't just affirm how we act towards each other; it changes it. It changes it because it invests our vision of Christian community with something that is larger and, and more powerful than other bonds. And so I was thinking about that. And I'm like, well, should I do 12? And I'm like, well, I probably got to check out 12 first to see if it kind of links up with that. And boy, <laughs> were there some nice surprises in here. Here's the thing is that, you know, you might hear all the stuff about like divisions. And the point is to get rid of the divisions so then we can love. And, you know, I I think I even kind of, you know, framed it that way a little bit last week. And as I thought about it more, and it it is in part uh, influenced by the fact that Annabeth's been studying for a chemistry test this week. So as I think about it, it's not like we get rid of the divisions and then agape can happen. Okay, ready for this? Agape is a solvent. Agape dissolves things. Agape is a practice that's embodied in the love feast that it's not like we just need to get rid of the divisions and then the agape can happen, but that instead, when we love as we are called to love, those divisions start to minimize and dissolve because we create a new vision of what it means to be together, to live together, to exist together. And so, like, the whole thing about the love feast is that it, like, if it is an action that embodies love, it's more than just positive sentiment, it's more than just a really strong feeling, but it's more than just making sure everybody has stuff to eat so that love can come about. Instead, love is an action that ought to radically transform the way we relate to others and it ought to radically transform then ourselves and our nature, the nature of our community by dissolving the things that divide us. That's what I mean when I say agape is a solvent and I as I read it, I don't even know that Paul's necessarily chastising the divisions in this community, saying, hey, get rid of those divisions, I think Paul's saying, this is evidence that the solvent of agape has not fully worked for you yet, because these divisions persist. And were the solvent of agape to do the work that it's supposed to do, those divisions would no longer exist. And that's a lot different kind of argument. It's a lot different kind of argument because it doesn't separate the way that we act towards other people from the character of agape as a solvent, where I see in each and every other person a person for whom I ought to be both the face of Christ and they ought to serve as the face of Christ to me. And if you think about a community that way, holy cow, I think it fully transforms what it is exactly that we think we're doing here. So, you know, Paul's talking about that in the context of the love feast, and then at least as this maybe this is just like the limitations of the church I grew up in and maybe I you know wasn't taking sermon notes well I don't know but like I'd always then thought okay so Paul's got this kind of love feast thing out of the way he's got a kind of quick deal with this question of spiritual gifts cuz that was another thing in the body and then he wants to get to the stuff that's really important about love but if you read everything together all of a sudden I think it takes on a lot different way of I don't know thinking about the relationship between the agape feast, between the gifts, and finally towards the definition of love. And it's not for nothing that at the end of this chapter, there's this little teeny beautiful transition phase phrase that Paul uses, and now I will show you a more excellent way. It ties together all the stuff that's come before to demonstrate the things that divide the vision of the community, and he's going to answer to those divisions by talking about the character of love. So it creates a really beautiful reading of this run of chapters if you think about it that way. So here we go. He kind of jumps into the spiritual gifts and uh, he uh, ends this whole discussion, like I said, by promising to show us a more excellent way. And I want to talk, I'll do it out of a different order than I normally do. I want to talk a little bit about the more excellent way transition and then hop back up to the top. So more excellent way. I want to show you a more excellent way, which I think is the punchline to the talk about the agape feast and the punchline to the talk about the gifts. It's uh, I give that translation a C plus, more excellent way. It's not wrong, but it misses the point. Okay, so the the word for more excellent is maybe you got a shot. You know, it's a it's an English word now. What that was a Greek word. The word for it is hyperbole. Now I'm going to show you the hyperbolic way. Now, when we think about hyperbole, I know as these kids these days uh, say, hype, you know, hyped up, they hyped it too much. When we think about her- hyperbole, we're usually thinking about something that is presented, I don't know, in excess of or more dramatically than the thing really is, right? But the literal Greek words for it are to throw beyond. So that makes sense. Like if, some, if you're hyping something too much, you're throwing beyond the reality of the situation, But here, Paul is not using it in that negative sense. Paul is using it in a positive sense. That this more excellent way will throw us beyond the way that we are currently on. It will change the way that we think about all the practices that have followed. And so he's gonna work towards that in talking about the gifts. And so, you know, the reason why I omitted any reference to the gifts In the uh, passage is is not, I don't know, it's not like I'm trying to suppress the Pentecostal threat or whatever. The reason why I'm doing it is because I want us to see the outline and logic of it, because it's my opinion that the talk about the gifts here is not the focus like I heard it. It's a vehicle for talking about how we think about how this community works together and how it eats together and how it thinks about uh, practicing gifts together. So usually we treat this as kind of a taxonomy of the gifts, and, and we've read it for that uh, without the reference to the gifts for a reason. Please don't accuse me of trying to, like, I don't know, bake the text or something. I don't think it's primarily about the gifts. Like I said, I think it's a vehicle for making an argument about how the church works as a body, and the gifts are secondary here, even though the spiritual gifts are an awfully important thing to talk about theologically, yada, yada, yada. Our tendency, I think, and at least, again, maybe I'm speaking in my own experience, is basically to spiritualize this passage in a way that makes it harder to see what it is setting up as an argument about the character of love as a solvent. So here's a, here's a concrete example. And this is, this is one of those, uh, when I did the translation on this, I was like, Pow. okay, verses one through three. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to say know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So let's unpack that a little different. So the way I heard it, and I think the way we normally hear it, there's a lot of, like, moral sentiment bound up in that term pagan. And when we hear it, what do we think? Like, these are people following a different religion. They're wearing goat legs. They're probably, I don't know, like burning things on fire or sacrificing various things. They're pagans, and they're certainly not Christians, or at least folks in the Jewish tradition. Okay, maybe, but what happens if this passage is not about religious paganism? So the Greek word here is ethnos, like the word that we get our version for ethnic from. It doesn't directly have a religious implication, I mean, it ends up that, it ends up the word kind of gets translated as like people, or sometimes as tribes, sometimes as races. I think the most common word that we have for it, that we connect with, is like nation. You know, and ethnos is like, and some evangelicals call it these days, a people group, okay? But it's not directly talking about religious practices. It's saying that when you understood yourselves from the perspective of the various cultures, tribes, clans, people groups you came from, you were likely led astray by idols. The point there is that the identity that you had that is based on the group that you came from or the context in which you grew up led you astray to, and we did that shtick about idols not too long ago, what is an idol? It's an individualized understanding of who God is that largely serves the purpose of reinforcing your way of setting up your world so it's not like the idolatrous pagan religion practice religious practice is what is at issue here what's at issue here is before we met jesus our understanding of religion of spirituality of all those different practices was almost always rooted in our race or our nation or our culture or our clan and that's why we preserve pursued idols because when we understood ourselves primarily to be under, to engaging the world in terms of our ethnos, our vision of who we were as a people. We pursued all kinds of different understandings of who God was, and we largely did so because they reaffirmed our own understanding of the world. And if you're a Christian like I am who understands themselves in some sense to be an evangelical but is also frustrated with the way evangelical Christianity has been put towards specific political ends, this might resonate with you. Because we all know people for whom their main investment in their religious orientation is about reaffirming their own existing political ideology and not about truly seeing the character or person mm-hmm. of Jesus. Paul's not talking just about paganism here. By that definition, it would be a kind of paganism to take Christianity and make it serve some other end. The point Paul's talking about is that when people think about the church and think about gifts in the church and think about relationships within the church, that they kind of have, and I'm going to draw this connection out more later, a basic choice. Is their religion about their connection to their ethnos? Or is their religion about their connection to a body? That's the beautiful thing about this. Really, the whole passage turns on is it your ethnos, your group, your culture, your identity that matters? Or is it the body that matters? And how do you belong to it then? Do you belong to the church as if you belong to a member-oriented group, like a ethnicity, a race, a clan, a tribe? Or do you belong to it as if you belong to it in the same way that you belong to a body? And why? Well, this is the point Paul's making. And, and, and by the way, doesn't that make much more sense out of why Paul's saying If you can't curse Jesus if you believe in Jesus, and you can't say Jesus is Lord without the Spirit, it doesn't make sense to say that if this is about telling people to reject pagan religious practices. Because, of course, like, reject a pagan practice. It only makes sense to say it if Paul's saying when we say that our affinities are towards Jesus, we can only do so because we are being bound together by the Spirit. All right, so for people who profess Jesus... For people who are moved by the Spirit, their primary focus is not their ethnos, their primary focus is the body. And the question of the body is something that's a little bit different. So, I mean, it's a kind of a weird and weird comparison, but imagine that you have a gift that is given to you in the context of your ethnos. Okay, so, like, you have a community that is bound up by a vision of identity where everyone's the same and thinks the same way, and all of a sudden someone is like, hey, BT-dubs, I can heal people, okay? What, what happens in the context of the ethnos? Well, what happens in the context of the ethnos is you think, well, holy cow, this person has been picked out by our God to do a thing that has incredible esteem, or this person can prophesy, so, I don't know, let's turn them into a shaman and say how awesome they are, and man, their social media footprint would explode or whatever. In the context of the ethnos, the question is, everyone's trying to kind of compete for status and place in the group. But in a body, if something good happens to part of your body, you don't say, "Well, shoot! I can't believe my hand got healed. My foot still has a bunion." How? And foot and hand are in a fight because the relationship between body and the relationship between ethnos is fundamentally different. The relationship of a body is one that understands it as a part, which is made up out of a a, a series, uh, made up into a whole, and the whole defines the character of the parts. For people who profess Jesus and who are moved by the Spirit, the point of a gift is not that it glorifies or solidifies your special status in your spiritual plan. The point of a gift is that it is given for the good of the whole community. And by the way, the point of a gift in an ethnos is that it highlights the character of and the goodness of the recipient, but the gift to a body is something that creates a benefit for the whole body. That's why Paul says in four, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, everyone is the same God is at work. And just think about what it means then for the logic of a body, like that Trey can preach or that Sonia can organize or Dan can write great minutes or Brian Mason can work a spreadsheet or Lucia can play the piano or all the other gifts that Angela can work her eerily powerful magic on kids should not cause any one of us to be resentful right? Like, I'm not like, oh, I can't believe you have such an amazing connection with our children. How dare you? I'm the guy that the children should like. That, that, that may work in the context of an ethnos, but not in the context of a body. Because in a body, the gift of each person is a gift that is given for the whole and to the whole and for the sake of the good of the whole. And that's what makes it different from an ethnos or a tribe or a nation. Because it shouldn't be an object of competition. Instead, it is an object of and something that is given to the gift and made as a gift for the whole community. Verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Remember that one? Remember that one? All of these are the work one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them for, as he determines. Remember that thing about koine. We talked about love as koine, and what was it? It was learning to speak a common language. The closest that we could come to thinking about how love binds us together was like when the Greeks all started to learn to speak the same language and speak in the same vocabulary. To be given for the common good is to say that as a gift is given, not for the good of one, but for the good of all of us being knitted into a whole. That's why the idea of the body versus the ethnos is such an important distinction here. It's basically, are you a pagan, even as a Christian, or are you a member of the body? And the revolutionary thing about love is that love is the kind of solvent that makes us the body. It is, the body is a model for a vision of common good. We're no longer defined by the membership in all the different ethnoses that used to make sense for us. Like, what are our different ethnoses? Like, of course, family is a kind of ethnos in that sense. Of course, nationality is an ethnos in that sense. Uh, occupation may be an ethnos in that sense. Politics is certainly a kind of ethnos. These are all the different ways that we kind of bind ourselves together in order to understand who we are. And Paul's saying that we walk, when we walk in these doors, we lay aside each one of those ethnoi. And instead, see ourselves as made up by a body. And because we are made up by and as a body, there's no room for spiritual jealousy, there's no room for resentment, there is only celebration for the fact that the gifts are given to us by God and that God has given each person in this room to our community for the sake of making it a community. And to me, that's beautiful. It's not just about who gets what gift. And this solves another big problem at the end of this chapter. It's about seeing whether it's in the distribution of goods in communion or the distribution of gifts in the context of the community that once we see that we're not bound to the logic of the group but instead bound to the logic of the body, then love does its work. And in love doing its work, it draws us closer and closer together. And in doing so, we more fully see the face not only of the people alongside whom we worship, but we see the face and the real person and presence of Jesus Christ. Christ. And in ethnos the presence of a gift was about increasing your standing in here in the church in the body in the kingdom. If you can speak in tongues of angels, it doesn't matter if you don't have love in the body of Christ. Things are different verses 12 through 14. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but in all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink, even so the body is not made up of one, one part but many. The solvent of love does not eliminate our personal difference, but it transcends them by merging them into something with a higher dignity. It makes them in some, in, in, more than just in the service of ourself, but in the service of the whole. And here's the important thing. Parts are the condition for being unified into a body. We'll all remain in some way individual and unique, but the body becomes the principle that defines the place and the role and the function of the relationship between the parts. And that's the whole point, because whether we're talking about the love feast or spiritual gifts, look at verses 25 through 27. There should be no division in the body. There should be no division in the body. Its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. If I think in terms of my ethnos or my groups, of course it's sad for me maybe if someone makes, I don't know, fun of a rhetoric professor. But it does not damage or cause me to suffer in the same way that it does if there is an insult to a member of the body. And that's the thing that we're being called to do is to see that body, the principle of it and the love of it as the solvent that minimizes the differences between us not to deny our individual uniqueness but instead to see that we draw meaning from and our focus is and our point is the veneration of the body. Now, If you don't read it that way, if you don't read it that way, the last two verses are kind of tough. What in the heck does it mean to be desirous of the greater gifts now Paul's just gone through this whole thing like ah they're all equally important they all have a different thing they all have a different role even the ones that have lower dignity we have to give a higher dignity to so we see them as part of the body why in the world would you then suggest that people ought to be desirous of the greater gifts it seems directly contradictory to me but he says that right before he says what now I'll show you a more excellent way look at this is beautiful I, I think this is beautiful I had always understood and heard sermons about this as a kid, not thinking about the relationship between the group and ethnos and the body and the solvent and love and all that. And almost every, I just remember as a kid, like most pastors that I listened to really struggled to make sense out of this one. You know, like Paul spent a few paragraphs saying all the gifts belong to everybody and they're all important for the body. Don't seek them for your personal good. But, you know, you should desire the greater gifts. Why? like? Maybe people need to keep working towards them. That would be silly. They're gifts. Like, it's very difficult to square why Paul would say that. Then I learned some Greek. The words for desirous and greater are the keys here. This is not intention with the preceding stuff. It is a beautiful affirmation of it. And maybe only Southerners can fully understand the first one. Okay? Desirous is in the second person plural. So it is not an instruction that each individual in the congregation ought to each individually desire the greater gifts. You need a Southernism to get the larger sense. What is it? Y'all. y'all. No, all, y'all. all y'all need to desire the greater gifts. But the word for greater is even better. It's one of my favorite Greek words to talk about because you already know it almost perfectly. I will not have to do a bit of defining of it. Okay, so the word for greater like there's lots of words for greater. Greater you know, there's a comparative word for better like kraton or kalos for good or agathon for kind of beautifully good like there's lots of words there. But there's this one word that doesn't get used very often in the New Testament that is the word for greater here. Anybody have a guess at it? This is awesome. Mega. <laughs> Y'all desire the mega gifts. (laughs) Doesn't that make a lot more sense out of this passage than you thought about in the past? He's saying that as a whole, we ought to desire not just an individual gift, but the mega gift that ties all gifts together. The mega gift that is not just the manifestation of a specific thing, but instead y'all ought to seek out the mega gift, the grander gift, because the gift that is love is given to the whole of us. And every partial gift, speaking in tongues, proselying, playing the piano, being able to do amazing things with children, working a spreadsheet, doing a budget, writing minutes, running a meeting, those are all subsets of the mega gift, which is the provision that God has made for God's body. So y'all should desire the mega gift as part of the more excellent way that Paul is about to introduce, the way of love. And I've already talked about a little bit that, that a little bit, The way of hyperbole. Now think about it. That's where I kind of really think this idea of love as a solvent starts to come in. I mentioned it briefly a little bit at the beginning that it's like throwing beyond in the positive sense. But what Paul is saying here is now that you understand what we have to do in order for love to be embodied at the level of the communion meal, and now that you understand what we have to do for love to be embodied in thinking about the distribution of the gifts, each one of you, all, y'all, ought to to desire the mega gift. And I'm going to show you how to do it by talking about about love, which is a way that throws us beyond that which is currently real to us that throws us beyond that which we currently do, that will dissolve your existing way so that we can encounter God and encounter others honestly and directly and in action as a way of being in common that not only dissolves or burns out the last vestiges of the ethnos in our community, but that dissolves and burns out the division in our community and that dissolves and burns out the places in us where we have not fully given ourselves over to be members of and connected to the body to desire the mega hyperbolic gift of love, to be thrown beyond what we know and what we are comfortable with, and to encounter in one another the person and the face of Jesus Christ in our brothers and our sisters and those who inherit the kingdom with us and to be made in some, into something more than a group or a race or a nation or a tribe or a clan, but instead to be fully integrated into the body and blood of Jesus Christ, in him and with him and for the sake of God's agapic love. Amen. questions or talk.